sin. Please take out your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 22. We've been looking at this for some time. I, I typically only preach about one Sunday evening a month. Pastor Walton does the lion's share of the Sunday evening preaching, and so we've moved through this quite slowly. I believe this is our eighth sermon, looking at the life of David. And we come now to yet another scene in David's life where he's having to flee Saul as Saul is attempting to kill him. So 1 Samuel chapter 22, give your attention to the word of God. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adalam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went there from Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse? in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he is risen up against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant. Or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guards who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. 
But the servants of the king would not put their hand out to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. As I said, this is our eighth sermon from the life of David. There are many reasons to study David's life. He was a fascinating character. He was a a Renaissance man. We've seen this. He was both a warrior and a poet. He he was a friend and a lover. He's a fascinating character. We've already learned lessons from his life about things like courage in the face of our enemies, the blessing of Christian friendship, the slippery slope of careless living, And we even learned last time how to act insane in the face of an enemy king, didn't we? But none of those is David's chief lesson that he teaches us. The the chief lesson David teaches us and the reason that we would devote an entire series of sermons to the life of David actually isn't because of David at all. It's because of the one that the New Testament refers to dozens of times as the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, son of David was a genealogical reference. Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. That was David's tribe. Jesus' lineage on both Mary and Joseph's sides can be traced back to David. Jesus was even, like David, born in Bethlehem. And so there certainly is a genealogical element to this title. But there's more to it than that. When when the New Testament refers to him as the son of David, it's more than just genealogy. It's what we call typology. Typology. When we say typology, we're talking about how certain Old Testament characters foreshadow or point to or form a pattern that is then fulfilled in their greater New Testament counterpart. Now, God certainly could have just opened the pages of Scripture with the Gospels, couldn't he? But in his wisdom, he gave us the 39 books of the Old Testament to shape patterns in our mind, laying a foundation, helping us to understand the ministry of Jesus Christ. And those 39 books of the Old Testament are full of types. They're full of these patterns that point us to the Lord Jesus. Now, that word type, T-Y-P-E, it comes from a fairly common Greek word, typos, which means an impression left by a thrust or a blow. So in John 20, 25, when Thomas wanted to see the marks in Jesus' hands and his side, the word that he wanted to see was the typos. He wanted to see the impressions or the pattern that was there 
from the weapons. When it comes to the Old Testament, we find that there are many people, events, and things that are part of a pattern that are fulfilled, that are intensified and fulfilled in the New Testament. Let me give you an example of one. Numbers chapter 21, the Israelites had grumbled against God, and he sent poisonous serpents to deal with them, and many were killed. But what did God do? He, he had Moses raise up a serpent on a staff, and that staff was, uh, was posted up in the wilderness, and all who looked to it were saved. Well, Jesus, in, in John 3, verses 14 and 15, he interprets this for us. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is saying there, that was a type. It, it was a foreshadowing or a pattern that gave people the, the mental foundation for understanding what's going to be happening to me when I am lifted up in the wilderness, when I'm lifted up on the staff. Another was Jonah. Jonah, uh, of course, was swallowed by the large fish and spent three days in the fish's belly. Well, Jesus in Matthew 12 was talking to the Jews. The Jews are, as they often did, they wanted a sign from him. And Jesus in Matthew 12, 39 and 40, he said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus is is doing typology for us. He's showing us how those things are ultimately pointing to him, the greater Jonah, the greater staff in the wilderness. The key to really understanding the Old Testament is to see how the people and the places and the things of the Old Testament point to the Lord Jesus Christ, how they're fulfilled in a greater way in the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's, that's the purpose of typology. It's not just for us to find hidden puzzles or connect the dots. It's so that we would understand, we would come to a greater understanding of the work of redemption in Scripture. That, that's the purpose of all this, to teach us more and more about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so in that sense, we understand the Old Testament doesn't just contain a few isolated Messianic texts. Let me quote Herman Bavink here. He says, The entire Old Testament dispensation with its leading persons and events, its offices and its institutions, its laws and its ceremonies, is a pointer to and movement toward fulfillment in the New Testament. Babink is saying there, everything you find in the Old Testament is somehow pointing us to a greater fulfillment in the New Testament. Isn't that neat? To think that God, this shows us the inspiration of Scripture, that it's truly written by God, that this book, written over 2,000 years, could point to an event that was going to happen far off in the future, and it would form these patterns, these types, that those of us 2,000 years later can look back at, and the light bulb goes on. Ah, just as Jonah was in the fish's belly, Jesus would be in the belly of the earth. I get it now. How do we know if we're looking at a type when we study the Old Testament? Let me, this may be helpful for you to write down a couple of quick characteristics of typology. And it may be helpful 
uh, to you. My hope is that you won't just gain uh, the benefit of studying tonight, but that every time you study the Old Testament, you'd be able to look at these types and recognize them and learn more about the ministry of Christ. So uh, a few characteristics of typology. First, typology is grounded in history. It's grounded in historical people, places, and events. So it's, it's not allegory. It's not just subjective story. But this is actual history, historical people, places, and events that have a greater future, future fulfillment. Second, there's, no, there's notable, excuse me, there's notable resemblances between the type and the fulfillment. By the way, the word for the fulfillment is antitype. So when we say antitype, we're talking about the, the fulfillment of that type. So for example, think of the Passover lamb. The blood of the lamb served to cover the Israelites' uh, sin and, and to cover them from God's wrath. Well, Christ did the same thing. And so Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 5, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So there's a resemblance between the two. But third, there's an intensification or a heightening from the type to the fulfillment. Yes, Jesus is like the Passover lamb, but Jesus is the greater Passover lamb. And we could spend all night just discussing how Jesus is the greater Passover lamb. If you read the book of Hebrews, Hebrews is really fascinating because the whole book of Hebrews is just saying, here's how Jesus is the greater Moses. He's the greater Aaron. He's the greater temple. He's the greater. That's the whole point is to explain how Jesus is the greater fulfillment of all these patterns and shadows that you see in the Old Testament. Fourth, typology should strengthen our confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It should strengthen our faith. So we don't do this just to find hidden treasures in the Scriptures. We do this to find hidden treasures in the Scriptures that strengthen our faith, that cause us to have greater hope and confidence in Jesus Christ. So that's some background on typology. And the relevance to this text is that there is no character in the Old Testament that serves a greater role of pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ than King David. The more we understand David's role, the more we'll begin to understand and appreciate why the New Testament dozens of times calls him David's son. As we're going to find this evening, and we won't spend much time on it, but David isn't the only type in the story. Saul, in many ways, is a type as well. He, he's certainly not a type of Christ, but he's a type of Christ's enemy, of the evil one. And, and even the conflict between Saul and David is a type. It's a, a, a microcosm of the great spiritual battle going on in this world between good and evil. So with all that as background, there's two things I want to do tonight. First, we're just going to expound the story. This is a, a confusing, difficult story, and so we want to try to understand it. And then we're going to look at typology in it, not only to increase your faith tonight, but so that you can open up the Scriptures and you can think through, okay, how do I find the Lord Jesus Christ in this text, in this person, in this place, in this office? 
So let's look first at the, the story itself. I, I, I suspect that this is your first time reading through this passage. It's a very confusing passage. You know, as, as with so much of David's life, there's much intrigue, there's devious behavior, and so many inexplicable actions that it takes a tremendous amount of digging. So let me remind you what's going on here. In the 400 years or so since Israel entered the promised land, They've never had a king. They had leaders like Joshua. They had judges like Samuel, but they wanted a king like the nations. That should be a red alert to you. God's chosen people, his royal priesthood, his holy nation wants to be like the nations. This has been a sin that the church has never been able to shake. The church longs to be like the world, and it goes all the way back to the Old Covenant. It goes back to the people of God at Israel. They looked at the nations, and they said, we want that. And so they chose a king, the kind of king that the nations would envy. This was Saul. He was tall. He was handsome. He was from an influential family in Israel. But he was also a disobedient king. The structure of Israel was that kings didn't they ruled over the people, but they ruled under the Word of God. That's why one of the first tasks of a king was to hand copy the Scriptures so that he, that king would be familiar with every word that God had breathed out. And Saul loved to rule but hated to submit. And so God took the throne away from Saul and gave it to another And that other was King David. We saw that a number of months ago as Samuel came to Bethlehem to the household of Jesse to anoint David as Israel's next king. But we need to remember that timeline, and hopefully you're tracking with this. It's almost three decades between David's first anointing in 1 Samuel 16 and the time that he would actually become king, that he would actually ascend to the throne. David thus far has served faithfully in Saul's court. He's been a military hero for Saul, and now he's even Saul's son-in-law. But whereas Saul should have rejoiced to have this man on his side, and as his successor, he was intensely jealous. He would spend over a decade devoting all of his attention to killing David. In in fact, so committed is Saul to killing David that he was even willing to kill his own son, Jonathan, because Jonathan had protected David. Now, last time we were together, we looked at chapter 21. We saw David had fled. He went to the Philistine city of Gath. But along the way, he stopped at Nob. He talked to the priest Ahimelech. Ahimelech gave him food and gave him a sword, and that's what we referenced here in our text today. Well, David went on to Gath. That's where Goliath was from. That means David was an unwelcome guest, and immediately David's recognized. And the king of Gath finds out he's there, and so how does David respond? David pretends he's crazy, and he's able to escape. That's where our text today picks up in verse 1. David departed from Gath. He went to the cave at Adalam. Now, this is a cave near Bethlehem, where David had grown up shepherding his father's sheep. This was likely a cave that he knew. It may have been a cave that he took the sheep to when storms came. But in this case, David went to Adalam because he knew his family was in danger. 
You see, if Saul was willing to kill his own son to get to David, certainly Saul would have no problem killing David's family. Well, I want you to see what happens here. In verse 2, we're told everyone who was in distress and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became a commander over them. You know, just by virtue of, see, uh, of fleeing Saul and protecting his family, the people begin flocking to David. This is a man that, that people want to be near. What's interesting is these are not the movers and shakers of society that you might expect a man of David's stature to be with. These are misfits. These are outcasts, and they're drawn to him, 400 of them. Well, then David moves this entourage from Adalam to Moab. And if you remember, David's great-grandmother Ruth was from Moab. And so in verse 3, David goes to the king of Moab hoping to find some favor with him so that the king would protect David's family. And indeed, the king does, and the family stays in Moab. As David's trying to decide, where do I go next? He talks to the prophet Gad that was with him. And the prophet Gad says, return to Judah. And so he does. Well, then the scene shifted, didn't it? It shifted to Saul. And we get a front row seat to this pity party that Saul is throwing for himself. And despite the fact that this man is still technically on the throne, he is pitiable and powerless. And he's convinced in his paranoia that everyone is out to get him. And so look at verse 7. He said to his servants, Here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that, you all, that all of you have conspired against me? Saul's saying, you know, I've shown favoritism to you. This, he's talking to his own people. He's saying, I've, I've, I've shown favoritism to you. Do you think David's going to do that for you? He's convinced they're all siding with David. Now, he doesn't have any reason at this point to believe that, but in his paranoia, in his insecurity, that's what he assumes. And so he's saying, is David going to treat you as well as I have? That you're going to go conspire with him? Well, in the process, Saul completely marginalizes himself from all of his men, except for one. There's a man named Doeg the Edomite. He's a foreigner. He's a descendant of Esau. He's an opportunist. We met him last chapter. He was there at Nob when David went to Ahimelech. He saw that Ahimelech had given David the food and the sword. So Doeg tells Saul what happened. So Saul calls Ahimelech in, and then he commands his guards to kill all the priests who are at Nob. Look at the guards' response there in verse 17. The servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. These are admirable men. They refuse to sin, even at the command of their highest earthly leader. And so Saul goes to his one friend he's got left, Doeg the Edomite. Doeg slaves 85 priests at Nob and many of the people of the city. Only one priest survived, Abiathar. It was the son of Ahimelech who would eventually become the high priest under David. So at this point, Saul has alienated himself from his tribe and from the priests of Israel. There's a whole lot more we could say just about the passage itself, but I wanted, what I want to do with the balance of our time is use this passage as a lesson in typology. How does this passage 
foreshadow the ministry of Jesus Christ? How does our confidence and our love for Christ get enhanced by what we see here in this text? Let me show you several ways that David is a type of Christ. First, we see from the beginning of this passage that even in the midst of deep personal distress and affliction, David is committed to keeping God's commandments. He's fleeing for his life, but what's he thinking about in verse 3? Taking care of his family. He's thinking about keeping the fifth commandment, to care for his father and mother. Isn't that a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who in the moments of deepest distress, as he was hanging from the cross, what does John 19 tell us he did? He cared for his mother and made sure that she would be well taken care of by John. He, he ensured with his dying breath that he kept the fifth commandment. Second, I want you to see David's compassion towards those going through trials. And verse 2 shows us he was sympathetic towards those facing hardship. Again, everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was in bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. Those who were outcast and beaten down by this world felt safe with David. That's a rare trait in a man of David's stature. Doesn't that point to the Lord Jesus Christ? who didn't just receive the weary and heavy laden, he came to earth for that very purpose. David sort of incidentally received them. Jesus Christ came to earth for those kind of people. Listen to Hebrews 4, 15. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus understands affliction. Third, these outcasts and misfits were the very people David used to build his kingdom. He didn't go looking for movers and shakers. He didn't look for the who's who of Israel. It was the outcast and the marginalized that would become David's entourage. It would become his, his cabinet. The prophet Gad would become David's prophet. Abiathar, the last surviving priest at Nod, became his high priest. Doesn't that point to the Lord Jesus who is pleased to use weak, imperfect, unknown people to build his kingdom? And by his greater power, fishermen and tax collectors and political nutcases turned the world upside down. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 1 where Paul reflects on this. He, and he seems to do so with great amazement. 1 Corinthians 1, starting at verse 26, the apostle says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the, in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul's amazed 
That it's, it's this band of misfits that Jesus Christ has used to literally transform the world. We ought to be as well that for the last 2,000 years, the gospel of Jesus Christ through misfits and outcasts and not many wise, noble, or powerful has transformed the world. Fourth, I want you to see David's love for God's word. Now, Last chapter, we saw several times David disobeyed God's word. He lied at multiple occasions. There will be points where he disobeys God's word in the future. But the general trajectory of his life was to obey God's word. And of course, he didn't have the 66 books of the Bible like we have. He probably just had little more than the Pentateuch. But that's why he had Gad the prophet. To speak to him on behalf of God. Look at David's obedience in verse 9. God's going to tell him one of the most illogical things that he could do at this point. The prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. Go back where the enemy is. Don't, don't stay here where it's safe. So David departed and went to the forest of Hereth. It wasn't the logical thing to do, but God's word and man's logic are often at odds with each other. And David, when the two were at odds, obeyed God's word. Doesn't that point to the Lord Jesus who loved God's word with all his heart? Who said it is his meat, his food, to do the will of his Father. Do you realize that about one in every ten verses that Jesus spoke in the New Testament is either a quotation or an allusion to the Old Testament. He is one of those who, sometimes John Bunyan's described this way, if, if you were to cut him, he would bleed Bible. That is true of Jesus. He loved the Word with all his heart. You know, we could spend hours just talking about the typology here between David and Jesus. David had no place to lay his head, neither did the son of David. We could talk about how both of them frequently found themselves in difficult seasons of life. We could talk about how David's entourage included a prophet, a priest, and a king, and how Jesus, in one man, was the prophet, priest, and king. We could talk about all of those things. There's one more way in which David was a type of Christ here, and it's that both were pursued by a wicked opponent who wanted them dead. David did nothing to provoke Saul's anger. But Saul's own internal sin and jealousy made him an unrelenting foe of David's. And this battle between them points to that cosmic spiritual battle that, that's announced in Genesis 3.15 when we're told that the serpent, uh, when God told the serpent that the seed of the woman would crush his head. Uh, this is the cosmic battle between God and Satan. We see it here as David is on the one hand aiding God's people and keeping God's word while Saul is killing off all the priests and hunting down the anointed king. In that light, Saul is a type as well. He's certainly not a type of, of, of Christ. He's actually a type or he's a picture or a pattern of the evil one. Uh, of Satan as he seeks to do harm at every turn. Let me, let me present you several ways that he's a, a type of the evil one. First, Saul, like Satan, lost his crown. In his disobedience to God's commands, 
Saul lost his privileged place in the kingdom. He lost it all for his own selfish ends. Isn't that what happened to Satan? Wasn't it Satan's vain glory that cast him out of heaven, according to Isaiah 14? How you are fallen from heaven. How you are cut down to the ground. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. That's, that's Satan's fall. It's speaking of Babylon, but it's also speaking of, of the fall of Satan. Saul's also intensely miserable and self-centered. He should have much to be joyful about. His kingdom is secure right now. His son-in-law is a great leader who will succeed him, and he has the promises of God. But look at how pitiful he is in verses 7 and 8. None of you is sorry for me. None of you discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant. You know, that's the evil one's problem. He's a miserable creature, a miserable being. Intensely self-centered. Constantly concerned for himself and his own pitiful kingdom. And third, Saul, like the evil one, is, is, is a powerful leader who directs the fullness of his energies to hurt God's anointed. There's something wonderful in this text if we really understand this typology and this big cosmic picture of what's going on that ought to build our faith. For 30 years, David was fleeing this man. And David always stayed one step ahead of him. God preserved David at every turn. This passage even reminds us that God was working for David's preservation generations before David was even born, giving him these connections in Moab. David's Life reminds us here that God's promises will not and cannot fail. God's purposes will come to pass. We see it in David's life and we see it in the life of the son of David. All his purposes will come to pass. All of his promises will be kept, not just for himself, but for his people. All day, every day, God is working out his purposes in the world. And try as the world, the flesh, and the devil may to overcome him, he will accomplish what he desires. They seek to destroy his church. He promises to build his church. They seek to pervert his word. He convinces his people of his word all the more. Satan accuses, but Christ redeemed. Just as in times of ministry, of David's ministry, the wrong seemed off so strong, we're constantly reminded in the life of David and in the life of Christ, God is the ruler yet, and his victory is certain. How do we apply this text? A couple of quick points. First, as believers, we have a duty to refuse unlawful commands. Verse 17 Saul commands his guards to kill the priests. The term for guards there was runners. They they were his right-hand men. They ran alongside the chariot, and they were to lay, lay down their lives to protect him. But what did they do? Every one of them refused the order of Saul. Were they wrong? No. Christians must refuse to obey unlawful commands. Second application, 
when we're familiar with the full counsel of God's Word, from Genesis to Revelation, it provides a deeper dimension for understanding the person and work of Christ. As believers, we need the whole warp and woof of Scripture. We need it all. We need every different genre, every type of Scripture to be in our diet, both in the corporate context and in the personal context. To quote Alistair Begg, we find Christ in all the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, He's predicted. In the Gospels, He's revealed. In Acts, He's preached. In the, in the Epistles, He's explained. And in Revelation, He is expected. So we need the whole Christ from the whole of Scripture. Final application. Just consider the kind of people that flock to David. Oddballs and outcasts, marginalized and maddening people. And if King David was willing to accept people like that, how much more can you and I be sure that those of us who fit that category can come to the Lord Jesus and will not be cast out. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the life of David, uh, mainly because it teaches us about the life of Christ. Teach us, O Lord, to study the scriptures Christocentrically so that these stories from 3,000 years ago would have as rich of an impact upon our lives as they did when they were first written down. We pray all this in Jesus' name.